It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. I wanted to start with a slightly more perhaps frivolous topic, although not really. The person featured in the topic is frivolous. The topic itself is not. The aforementioned person is the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. The decidedly non-frivolous topic is the border crisis. So on Friday's show, when we were still out at Stanford doing a week-long program session there in a fellowship where we were at the Hoover Institution, one of our guests on Friday was Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican down in Texas. He represents one of the border districts down there. And we talked to him about the fact that it was announced recently, somewhat recently, that the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, was going to travel down to Texas for a series of events. So Congressman Gonzalez and some other people I saw, including Senator John Cornyn, were suggesting that perhaps while she's in Texas, since you're in the neighborhood, Madam Vice President, and you are at least technically still the border czar, in charge of the border crisis, maybe just hop on the chopper and go a little further. I know liberal Austin is where she was headed to raise a bunch of money, but just go a little deeper into Texas, down to the border, and maybe assess it for yourself. She had resisted going to the border for months. You remember some of those embarrassing answers that she would give when asked, why haven't you gone to the border? Are you going to go to the border? She's like, well, I haven't been to Europe. I'm not going today. And then she ha, ha, ha. She'd always laugh awkwardly. Then she finally got shamed, basically, into going to El Paso, which was far away from the epicenter of the crisis, certainly at the time, although El Paso has had its hands full recently. Right? No border community is immune from this. She was down there for like a nanosecond, a box-checking, perfunctory performance, just to say that, yes, I've gone through the ritual, I've been there, and now I can stop thinking about it. That's what she did. Still better than Biden. The president has not been down to the border by the White House's own admission in about a decade and a half. His policies have created and turbocharged this humanitarian crisis, this disgrace to our national sovereignty, the public safety and national security issues, all playing out at the border, he's responsible chiefly because he's the guy at the top. And he absolutely cannot be bothered to go down there. She at least sort of pretended once. But over the weekend, because we heard from Gonzalez that he was not getting a response from the vice president's office, Cornyn was tweeting about her official itinerary and her schedule that they had posted publicly, no mention of the border. There was some effort to get her down there didn't happen. She parachuted into Austin, 
did an abortion-related event where they talked about abortion rights, and then she went to a Democratic fundraiser. And those two things are basically indistinguishable these days. An abortion festival and a Democratic fundraiser, it's a sort of one and the same at this stage, sadly. And then she was out. The border czar not only did not go to the border while she was in Texas— the state most impacted by the crisis that her administration is presiding over and causing through their policies, based on the reporting that I have read, over the course of those two events that she attended and spoke at, she did not even mention the border or immigration once. Was not mentioned. See no evil, hear no evil. We're here to talk about abortion on demand. In the state of Texas, we are not here to talk about the border crisis, which is, again, theoretically in her portfolio as vice president of the United States. We have talked ad nauseum about the border crisis. At this point, you can probably recite back to me some of the statistics, and these statistics are astounding. At least they should be. I refuse to be inured to these numbers. To not be shocked at a million known gotaways, two million apprehensions in a single year, of which hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those individuals are being processed and released. Now, what we got from the vice president, who was scrupulously avoiding that topic at all costs, was a number of sound bites that are just difficult to listen to and to watch. Because I don't know if it's a nervous tick or if she actually thinks that she's funny and entertaining, but the vice president was doing what she does. Often talking to people like they are young children, like she is this brilliant person who has to slowly explain basic things to people. And then bursting into laughter as she does as she does so over things that are. I think most of us can agree, just objectively not funny, not even really close to the line of being funny. So here's one example. She was talking at the abortion fest. In cut 30, she was going to inform the audience about the Senate filibuster. Again, she's talking to grown adults. She's not talking to first graders, but from her tone, sometimes it's hard to tell if she's aware of that. Here's what she said in Cut 30. I'm just going to say the fact. It's not political. <laughs> it's, not an, it's not an advertisement. It's just a fact. So there's this thing in the United States Senate called filibuster. Mm-hmm. It's a library. We talk about things like facts here. Okay? <laughs> and it has been used over the years in a way that I think many of us would, would agree has been used to obstruct progress. So you're missing, of course, on radio the context of her facial expressions. You can hear in the background the sycophantic, awkward laughter of the interviewer. But she's talking about facts and this thing called filibuster, which, of course, ironically, when she was in the Senate, she wasn't there for very long. And when she was there, she wasn't showing up for work quite as often as other people because she was busy campaigning running for president, going to the border, actually, 
to denounce the Trump administration at the border. That's when she would go, right, for those photographs. Not quite as dramatic as AOC in the white pantsuit weeping at a parking lot, but close. But when she did show up for work at the U.S. Senate, she was in the minority. The Democrats were in the minority party. And they were the ones enthusiastically, repeatedly, historically, actually, using the filibuster to obstruct progress, to use her term there, that they didn't like, including, by the way, on abortion. So she's complaining about the filibuster in the Senate as a scapegoat on the broader issue of abortion, I think just kind of ignoring or glossing over the fact that she participated in abortion-related filibusters to defeat to obstruct majority-supported, broadly popular abortion restrictions. You wouldn't get that from her little tutorial there to the adult audience about a thing called filibuster. And we do facts here at this library. Ha! Yeah, it's a laugh a minute over there. She also at one point, we talked about this, what, a week or two ago, this strange fascination that she seems to have with Venn diagrams. The RNC put together more than a minute-long montage of public comments in which she, as an aside, talks about her love of Venn diagrams. Here's just a little bit of it. Cut 28. Remember Venn diagrams, those three circles? Right. And then let's just see where they overlap. You will not be surprised because I have constructed a Venn diagram on this. Remember those three circles, how they overlap? I love Venn diagrams, so... (laughs) I just do. Whenever you're dealing with conflict, pull out a Venn diagram, right? And so, you know, the three circles. And so I, so I, I asked my team, right? They're I'm fantastic. Out right now. Okay, enough, 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 enough. It's too much. This, I guess, look, I've done a lot of public speaking through the years, and sometimes you sort of figure out a riff or a joke or an aside that really works well. You've read the room. You know that it's going to get a laugh or it's going to draw a response. So you sort of file it away, and at the appropriate moment, you bring it out. And if you're good at what you're doing, it gets the response that you're expecting because you've done the trial and error and you know what's coming. I think actually in her mind, this is one of her successful lines. I think in Kamala Harris' brain, she's like, oh, now's the time for me to break out the Venn diagram comment because it's a hit. And I don't really know if there's great evidence to support that belief in her brain, aside perhaps from like the uncomfortable pity laugh that she might get for it. But boy, she unleashed it again over the weekend down in Texas in cut 29. Just listen to this big moment of hilarious, uproarious laughter. To your point, I early on asked my team, uh, well, let me just say, I love Venn diagrams. (laughs) 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 I really love Venn diagrams. You know, the circles, right? Three usually. (laughs) Oh, and then the painful laughter of just her echoing. By the way, am I crazy? Or is she also wrong about what Venn diagrams are? How many different times do we just hear her say, oh, it's the three circles usually? Three? Now, isn't it two? 
I, I really don't think I was into Venn diagrams ever, but I think it was kind of like a, a late elementary, early middle school thing. It's like, here are two circles, and they overlap to create this middle area where there's some common ground. It's two circles, right? Not three. Am I wrong about this, or is she confused even in the big, like, slam-dunk line that she loves so much that she breaks it out all over the place wherever she goes? Pretty sure it's two circles that overlap, not three. I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong on that point. It's just a cringe factory. She is a walking, talking, cringe factory. And perhaps that's part of the reason why at a big, glitzy fundraiser for Texas Democrats, bringing in a lot of money in Austin, Texas over the weekend. Obviously, she wasn't going to go to the border or even talk about it. But guess who wasn't even in attendance? Robert Francis O'Rourke, a.k.a. Beto, who's, I'm sure, happy for that money to be raised. He just doesn't want to really be seen publicly with her, given the popularity of President Biden the administration, and her personally in the state of Texas. Sort of like, okay, you stay over there in Austin. We're all going to pretend like this isn't happening. But please do send us that check once you've got the money in your account. I saw a quote from the Republican chairman in the state of Texas about Kamala's visit that she was coming. His response was, excellent news. (laughs) I think we understand the dynamic at play there. The Guy Benson Show is just getting started. New day, new week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be right back. The best of the Guy Benson Show won't cost you a thing. Now that's what I call a Black Friday deal. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more note on the border issue on a much more serious and somber note. Our colleague Bill Malugin reporting this over the weekend. There was a mass stabbing on the Las Vegas Strip that killed at least two, half a dozen more wounded in this mass stabbing incident in Las Vegas. And I always make this point when talking about illegal immigrants who commit crimes or violent crimes. I am not trying to paint with a broad brush or cast the wider illegal immigrant population as a bunch of dangerous criminals. I don't think that that's fair. Most people just want to come here and make a better life for themselves and their families. Doesn't mean they have a right to be here. They don't. We have a legal process to go through. I also don't think it should just be like, oh, well, look at all these, you know, dangerous, violent people. Vast majority, that's not true. However, when you have largely uncontrolled illegal immigration, dangerous people come too. And there is a public safety, sometimes national security component, that some folks don't want to talk about. It's like, oh no, it's xenophobic, it's problematic. Well, this stabbing in Las Vegas, just a little snapshot. According to ICE officials, the alleged assailant is a Guatemalan national in the United States illegally who had accumulated a criminal record for himself in the state of California. But ICE had no record 
of this 32-year-old's criminal record before he went on this homicidal stabbing spree in Las Vegas. Why is that the case? Because California is a sanctuary state. And under their self-righteous, I'd say dangerous policies, they can't share this stuff with ICE. They are trying to protect people from being deported from this country, even people who get and commit crimes and get criminal records in that state. That criminal record was hidden from the federal government to protect this guy from deportation in the sanctuary state of California. Then he went next door to Nevada and stabbed eight people. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Hope you didn't bruise your credit card too badly this Black Friday. It's a best of Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board with us. Still to come, Britt Hume and General Jack Keene later in the program. We get to our first guest now, however. It's our friend Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in Seattle, Tacoma. Our great affiliate out there. Also crime correspondent for Tucker. And Jason, great to have you back. Thank you so much. Always, always I want to turn to, talk to about cr- the craziness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like, I know you're crime correspondent for Tucker. I feel like you're craziness correspondent for us. <laughs> and there's never a shortage of anything to talk about. And I will get to some of the crime here in a second. Before that, though, I wonder if you have a take on this. I actually shied away from tweeting about it just because of the loss of life in Ukraine and uh, the Russian bombing. Today, So I just sort of stayed away from it. However, I did see and we'll get to those details with with General Keene later. I did see this absolutely strange tweet from Randy Weingarten, of all people, the teachers union boss, who I guess is in Ukraine or near Ukraine. I guess she's maybe in Poland right now. And she was tweeting in favor of the Ukrainians, which I guess I agree with her on that. But she said, woke up this a.m. to reports of disgusting Russian missile attacks in Kiev, Lviv and other cities heading to the border now to assess the situation. And then she was uh, denouncing the Russians and talking about the importance of her trip. And I for the life of me, do not understand why Randy Weingarten should be heading anywhere near Ukraine to assess anything. And if we're worried about the well-being of children in Ukraine, I think maybe we should keep someone like Randy Weingarten as far away from them as humanly possible. Well, this is about Randy Weingarten, right? I mean, this is the worst of the worst when we think about the culture surrounding social media where someone will do something frivolous like take photos of their food because they think people care. Well, this is someone who's cheapening something that is actually significant and tragic just because she thinks it might help her brand. And I have to assume, because I was one of the people calling attention to how ludicrous this is and just frankly weird, but I'm wondering wondering if maybe she's just getting ready to run for something, run for office outside of uh, hurting children with her union uh, responsibilities. Maybe she's deciding to run for something where potentially this matters. I I I think most people are trying to figure out 
A, why did you tweet this? B, why should we care? And C, why are you even anywhere close to Ukraine right now? And it's just it's super odd. But when you're looking for attention and you're just trying to get people to talk about you, I suppose it makes a little bit of sense. Although, Jason, I must say I feel partially attacked by that answer because from time to time I do post photos of my food, especially on my Instagram story is where I typically go with that. And it's not all the time. And I actually like seeing other people's food if it's good, if it looks good and the photos are good. I'm blown away by the number of bad, unappetizing photos I see of people's food. Sounds like you're a hard no on all of it. Instagram is different than Twitter. Instagram, okay. you're supposed to post those things. You, you properly use Instagram and Twitter, and I'd like to think I do as well. Okay. Well, okay. Now we can agree on that. I appreciate that. A very important clarification here. Before yeah. we shift to some of these crime-related issues, a very disturbing incident over the weekend in New York where there was, I guess, some you know gunfire just outside the home of the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans in New York, Lee Zeldin, out on Long Island, sort of a residential area. His daughters were doing homework inside the house when gunfire broke out just outside their home. He said, Zeldin did, that one of the bullets ended up landing just about 30 feet from where one of his daughters was sitting. And here's how he described what happened. This was on Fox and Friends. Lee Zeldin running for governor in New York, cut 14. We get a phone call from our daughter, Michaela. We hear our other daughter, Ariana, in the background crying. She's speaking to 911. They were the 911 callers. Uh, Michaela's freaking out, but we're not able to hear everything because of the the Wi-Fi connection. They were locked inside of a bathroom. They were at the kitchen table. They were doing homework. All of a sudden, they're hearing multiple gunshots. They then hear screaming. They run upstairs, lock themselves in the bathroom. One of my daughters calls 911. The other one calls us. We just told them to stay locked down until we got uh, the clear from the Suffolk County Police Department, which did take a while. I mean, they, they responded, they secured the scene, and then we uh, told them to get out of the bathroom. Uh, but it really freaked them out. Jason, I mean, Zeldin's campaign has heavily focused on the issue of crime. There was that strange incident where he was quasi-attacked at a rally at one point. And some people said, that well, that was a little bit overblown. Well, here's gunfire right outside his house in Long Island, terrifying his his young daughters. And I don't know if we've heard anything from Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor. We know that she doesn't want to revisit bail laws at all. She doesn't want to debate Lee Zeldin. She'd been refusing to debate him at all. I guess they got one on the books very late in the cycle. But here is crime, not just hypothetical, not just theoretical, not just some statistics, but gunshots ringing out outside this guy's house, you know, you wonder, does this type of thing maybe break through to some voters who are used to just sleepwalking through these elections and and voting blue? Could this maybe turn things a little bit? You know, I'm not naive about this, but it's it's very upsetting to see this type of thing happen. Here's the reality of the situation, not just in New York, but everywhere where crime is going up. Every single day that we don't reverse course is another day where you are effectively one step closer to becoming a victim or knowing a victim of crime. It might not be gunshots going into your home or nearby, 
It might be someone breaking into your car or breaking into your home. But we know that the reason why we're seeing this crime surge, we can directly point to certain policies. You can point to policies like the getting rid of cash bail in New York. Here in Washington state, we can look at the ban on most vehicular pursuits, and that's why we're seeing an increase in smash and grab robberies. We know exactly why this is happening, and we know that it's not getting any better. We talk about it a lot, but unless we change the actual policies, unless we boot out of office the people responsible, nothing is going to change. And ultimately, when it comes to issues like crime or homelessness and drug abuse, unless you are really, really close to it, and experience it. If you're someone who lives in that world who's kind of blinded by everything that's going around you, and and by the way, I get that. People have lives. People have jobs. They're focused on their family. But when you go to a park that's been completely overtaken by homelessness, that's what it takes to get someone to realize the homelessness policy is out of control. So the more of these crimes that happen, the more people will find out there's a lot on the line when you aren't engaged or activated within your community. And that's a sad and, frankly, a terrifying place to be but I do think we have we can only talk about this so much without saying, yeah, I guess people are just not listening to us. They need to experience this, what it's like in their neighborhood. And the fact of the matter is there's not a single neighborhood out there right now that is truly immune from dealing with the consequences of the defund police movement and all of the policies that went along with it. Well, and the places that are least immune and most afflicted are places that have been overwhelmingly run by one-party rule for a very long time, which is why I know you and I talked about this, I believe, last week. Governor Newsom and D.A. Krasner in Philadelphia trying to spin this yarn about how it's really a Republican Trump problem because some of the cities where the crime is bad are in red states, but they're run by blue officials. They're Democrat-run cities. It just doesn't make sense to people. Republicans, I was actually talking about this on Fox News Channel earlier, Republicans have a double-digit lead on the issue of crime because intuitively the American people understand which party has been very indulgent of criminal behavior for the last few years in particular and which party has not. So I think the spin jobs aren't going to work. And the other thing is you have some Democrats willing to say out loud what many other people are thinking as well. And you can't really blame crime surges in the New York City area on Republicans. Democrats run the show. The former governor of New York David Patterson, a Democrat, he raised some eyebrows just, I think, yesterday when he talked about feeling unsafe in New York again in Cut 36. Listen. For the first time in my life, even in the late 80s and 90s, when the crime rate was killing 2,000 people uh, a year, I never felt as unsafe as I do now just walking around and, God forbid, uh, sometimes we take the subway home from uh, WABC, and uh, you're hearing about an assault on the subway almost every other day. So that's David Patterson, the former Democratic governor of the state of New York, saying even in the worst of the worst days, pre-Giuliani, you know, 70s, 80s, huge murder rate in New York City, he's never personally felt as unsafe as he does right now. In New York, I mean, some people can plug their ears and close their eyes and pretend like this isn't happening. But that right there is, I would say, a statement against interest, a huge indictment of the one party leadership in that state from a member of that party. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the reason why he probably feels less safe now than he did in the 80s when clearly crime was through the roof. The difference between the 80s and now is crime in the 80s was kind of very, very 
kept into a small region. It, it was so. For example, when you go into Southern California in the 80s, when crime was through the roof, it wasn't all across Los Angeles. It was centered in certain neighborhoods. The same thing was true in New York. But all of a sudden, right now, we're seeing this all across the the states, right? I mean, when we're talking about New York, we're not only seeing it in Manhattan. When we're talking about Washington, it's not only in Seattle, Oregon, not only in Portland. People who decided to escape some of the urban areas to, to get to a safer place for themselves and their family, they're the ones who are now experiencing this. And again, we know, I say this on my show here, is what happens in Seattle doesn't stay in Seattle. But the truth can be said about pretty much every Democrat-run city when it comes to the consequences of the policies that they've either pushed on the local level or ended up bringing to the state level. And again, unless you reverse them, you're not going to escape. There was in, over the weekend here in Seattle, if you go into Kirkland, Washington, this is the neighborhood that you go to outside of Seattle where you want to be safe. It is a higher-end neighborhood. All of a sudden, they end up, a family has an armed robber who shoots at the the, the home while stealing a whole bunch of things and then fleeing. They're doing this all over the place because we have enabled the criminal element. We have created this culture of lawlessness, and lawlessness doesn't stay in one neighborhood or one city. Mm. It spreads. Yeah, it used to be more perhaps segmented where there were areas that you didn't go that were extremely dangerous, but elsewhere you were okay, and some of those elsewheres are becoming less and less okay, to your point. And I know that's a familiar story for our listeners in Illinois. We recently had a guest on who's running for state representative, a buddy of mine from college, talking about something that the Democrats passed, party line vote, middle of the night, called the Safety Act, which is, of course, Orwellian. It is everything but anything but safe. And it's crazy. Like it's some of the worst criminal, quote unquote, justice policies in Chicago and applying them statewide in Illinois, including all these restrictions on police and enforcement and all these sort of gifts, like bouquets to criminals, making it much easier for them to get back out on the street very, very quickly after offending and offending and offending. And along similar lines, Jason, I saw you had a piece out that I, I think I saw on Twitter that is just sort of astounding, the current debate in your state, in Washington state, about yet another giveaway basically to criminals and, you know, shackling the police in terms of what they can and cannot do. This one potentially involving DUI suspects. Talk about what is under debate, under discussion right now in your neck of the woods. Well, and, and I thought everyone was pretty much on the side. No matter what you think about policing, we should be going after DUI suspects. We, we've all kind of settled on that, except in Seattle, because now there's a draft policy that I'm told – from multiple sources that is already being implemented, actually. But it basically tells officers that they have to give a pass to DUI suspects. So on the one hand, you're no longer allowed to use the maneuver called pinning, which is just basically parking your vehicle, your patrol car, within an inch of the DUI suspect, making it hard for them to just drive off. Now you have to give a car's length. On top of that, if the person you reasonably suspect to be DUI even if they're in a stolen car and they just speed away, you are not to chase them. If you find someone who's in a car that is running, dude is passed out with a needle sticking out of his arm, and let's just throw it in. It's a stolen car. You can try to wake him up verbally, but if he doesn't wake up, you're supposed to just leave. This is the world in which we now live in, and this is not unique like, to Seattle. Why? I'm trying to figure out like what, what equity or what justice does this serve? 
Yeah, so the argument that I've heard, and the police have not given me their argument in this case, but the argument coming from the, the left is that when you engage in a high-speed chase, you end up putting other people at risk needlessly. And that, could, that can be true. Not every officer is going to go on a high-speed chase. They use their experience. They use the context in which this is occurring before they decide to engage someone in a vehicular pursuit. So if we're saying that at 2 a.m. in the morning when no one's out on the streets, this is where the DUI suspect is going, just home, coming, driving home from a bar, it doesn't seem like there's a huge risk in that context to go ahead and try to stop the, the driver. Well, I just don't understand how it makes it safer or better overall if the plan is, oh, here's a clearly drunk driver in a stolen car, let him go? I, I mean, it's... <laughs> It feels like a cartoon universe that you inhabit out there, Jason, sometimes. And I can't believe that this stuff is even being proposed, let alone, you know, written down and maybe backdoor implemented already. Um, I, I know your audience out of KT, uh, KTTH and our audience there, too, very grateful for all the work that you do shining a light on this. And it'd be one thing if it were just crazy Seattle in that area, but unfortunately it's a lot of other places as well, which is why crime is such a huge issue in, let's say, the Wisconsin Senate race, the Pennsylvania Senate race all over the country. Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on the aforementioned KTTHR affiliate here as well. Crime correspondent for Tucker, craziness correspondent for us. Jason, always appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We'll step aside and return right after this short break. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, there were some interesting moments on the Sunday morning shows yesterday, including Fox News Sunday. Shannon Bream had Stacey Abrams on. We might play some of that audio for Britt Hume coming up in the next hour. But on the CNN Sunday show, State of the Union, Glenn Youngkin, my governor, Republican of Virginia, he was on with Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper asked him a question about energy, and I think that Youngkin really responded well and in a smart way for conservatives to emulate. Cut 22, here's that exchange. But I wonder if the events in your first year as governor, uh, the more intense hurricanes, which uh, scientists say they're more intense because of climate change, the war in Ukraine and this week's OPEC decision, uh, making uh, the insecurity of where we get our fuel from uh, highlighted. Doesn't that suggest that you should be, that we should be, leaning into more green energy, not less? Well, to be clear, what, I, what I've called for is an all of the above. And in fact, it's not reducing an emphasis on renewables, wind and solar. It's correcting an error that was made in the previous administration's energy plan, which was to exclude everything else. And so we need to, yes, move forward with wind and solar. We need to move forward with carbon capture and natural gas. We need to move forward with nuclear. And also not completely shut down oil, right? And those types of emissions, it's not realistic. It's going to be part of our reality for a very long time. And to pretend like that isn't the case actually is harmful. Right. Fossil fuels may not be here forever, but they're here for a good long time. And by the way, the previous administration he's referring to is the the Northam McAuliffe crowd, not the Trump administration. He's talking about Virginia specifically, but all of the above. I think that was a very good comeback to the premise of that question on CNN. The best of the Guy Benson show won't cost you a thing. Now, that's what I call a Black Friday deal.
from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Let's reset here. 833-456. We will get to your calls. 833-456-1300. Toll free connection here to the Guy Benson Show. And this is the question that I have for you. Speaking of pollsters, there's a lot of conversation out there around what is motivating voters. What are the top priorities of voters? Are the Republicans better representative of what is driving the electorate than Democrats? And we've run through a lot of those numbers. You hear buzzwords. You hear topics like inflation, economy, crime, immigration, abortion, democracy, right? Guns. Often people are given this whole laundry list. What is your number one issue Then people have to choose from this list? And then people like me look at the results and we talk about them endlessly as we get closer and closer to an election. I want to just do a non-scientific poll of this audience. Call us, 833-456-1300, and tell us very simply where you're calling from and what is the number one issue this year for you. If you've already voted in the early voting, you plan to vote early, you're going to vote on Election Day, What is the number one item or issue set or driver that is sending you to the polls? What is motivating you personally the most? Is it the cost of everything for you and your family, inflation, right, or broader economic concerns? Like everyone has their own story. People talk about being concerned about crime. For some people, that's very, very personal. You're not just a little nervous about what you see on the news. You're nervous about what might be happening down the block from you or to a friend's relative or what have you. So rather than taking a phone call from a pollster, which, by the way, I've never done. I've never gotten a poll call. I've never been. I'm probably one of the weirdos who would sit there for 20 minutes and do it. But I've never been polled. This is your opportunity sort of in a casual way, it's not a scientific poll here on the Guy Benson Show, but to tell us why you are voting and what is motivating you. Number one, I'm sure, look, we're we're complex people. Sometimes we have different things that motivate us, and sometimes there are cross-currents, like, okay, it's these four things, and maybe three of them go in one direction, but the other one goes in the other direction, then you kind of make a final judgment for yourself. I'm asking you to try to boil it down to just one. One issue that's motivating you. I have my own answer that I might reveal to you, and I've thought a lot about this, but I want to hear from you. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. All right, they're telling me just to give you mine. I'll give you mine, and we'll get to your calls. I know that you're waiting patiently. And I'm cheating a little bit because I care about so many different issues. The, the theme The theme that is driving me to vote, and by the way, I just voted this week. I did an early vote in Virginia a few days ago. By far, the theme for me is accountability. Look at what is happening in this country. Look at the series of debacles and disasters from this administration and their aiders and abettors in Congress. You can go down the list on so many different issues 
someone has to send a message to the ruling party, the people in charge, that we are not okay with this. They're never going to learn it through the media. The media is on their side. They're never going to fire anyone except for the occasional sacrificial lamb. The only way they will learn a lesson is by people forcing a lesson on them at the ballot box with a loss of their power. That's it. So for me, it is accountability. 833-456-1300. What is your top issue? Let's start in Georgia. Neha is up first. Neha, I'm so glad that you're listening. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I'm worried about is the economy. I'm a graduating student this coming year. I have a job, but something that a lot of my classmates and I are worried about is our job's going to be secure when we start in in, um, June or July. Yeah, I think that's fair because there's a lot of folks worried about what's coming next, a you know a double dip or a deeper recession. I came out of school, Neha, when I was, let's see, 2007. You got the jobs. You were sort of okay. Then 08 hit, and it was really scary. A lot of people couldn't get hired or lost their jobs. It was dicey there for me for a while. So I, I kind of remember some of that anxiety. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 21. Well, I mean, congratulations in advance on the on the uh, graduation that's impending. Congratulations to having a job lined up. That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, fingers crossed for you. And can I ask you who you're planning to vote for? Uh, I'm definitely voting for Kemp. And for Senate, it's hard because I don't like Warnock, obviously. I don't like Walker, so that's a tough one. All right. I'm deciding whether to vote for Walker and hold my nose or stay home. All right. I think that that well, but you're not going to stay home, right? You're voting for Kemp, but you might leave it blank. Yeah, yeah it's Pretty a numbers much, game. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I'd probably be right there with you if I lived in Georgia. I think I might hold the nose. I think. I'm not sure. Definitely all in for Kemp. Neha, that's awesome that you're listening in 21. Fantastic stuff. Please keep listening. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. What is your top issue? For that soon-to-be college graduate, for her, it's the overall economic situation. Let's hear from Dan calling from Wisconsin. Dan, welcome. Oh, he just dropped. <laughs> he just dropped right before we went to him. Oh, I guess the, our system crashed. Okay. Let's give you the phone number. We're going to reboot it. Call us. 833-456-1300. We will get those calls queued back up. We're going to quickly break, come back with more of your phone calls. 833-456-1300. The question on the table for the audience, the number one issue that you're going to be voting on this year. If you had to boil it down to just one, tell us what it is and why, and if you're comfortable, who you plan to vote for. 833-456-1300. We'll be back after this on The Guy Benson Show. The best of The Guy Benson Show won't cost you a thing. Now that's what I call a Black Friday deal. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Our phone number, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. The question on the table, what is motivating you to vote this year? Your number one issue. And right before the break, our system glitched. All the calls, we had full lines. All the calls went away. Christine's freaking out, but we've got people back on the line. They're packed again. 833-456-1300. Let's go to New York, Rome, New York. Mary, thanks for listening. My big, my biggest issue this year is border security and the immigration crisis. And may I ask if you're comfortable sharing who you plan to vote for or if you've already voted? 
I have not already voted. I'm going to vote right on election day, and I plan to vote Republican, Lee Zeldin, anybody like that. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you get the sense that there's really this surge in New York for Zeldin against Hochul? Is that real? I, you know, I really think so. Of course, I'm central New York upstate. I really sure. have heard on the ground people saying that he's got a chance. This might be the year we can flip it. All right, there we go. We'll see. Mary, thank you for listening. Thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. You got a New Yorker saying the border crisis is their number one issue. It's because every state is now effectively a border state because of this chaos. The human trafficking, the drug trafficking, etc. 833-456-1300. Larry is in North Carolina. Larry, so glad you called. Welcome. Thank you, sir. Uh, my biggest uh, issue is the economy and then follow close by the border. And when you say the economy, like what – how do you think about that? What specifically? Well, it's, it's everything. It's everything from the cost of food to uh, fuel. I'm recently retired. The 401K is taking a huge hit to the point where I'm even thinking about going back to work. Mm. And if you're comfortable telling us if you voted or planning to vote later, what's your game plan? Yeah, me and my wife, we both early voted yesterday, and we both voted straight Republican ticket. It's a, I hate to, to vote a straight ticket, but all the Democrats are just – they're just too scary. Um, yeah, as we were nice. going into the polling place, uh, one of those Democratic solicitors was trying to give us pam- Democratic pamphlets. I told her, I said, you know, we're already uh, – we already know who we're voting for. I appreciate it, and I was very polite. And then as I was, we were walking away, she yelled to me and said, can I – ask you one thing please keep an open mind an open mind to what i mean that's just yeah yeah well okay i mean you're not alone let me put it that way larry you are not alone not just in north carolina but around the country i think that sentiment that you just explained and expressed uh, is is pretty widely held thanks for the call really glad you're listening 833-456-1300 Let's see. Let's go to the West Coast. Neil is out in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest. Neil, hi. Hello. Hey, hi. Uh, guy, gas and diesel. If we can't afford gas and diesel, this country comes to a stop. Can I ask you a question about Oregon? I know the Republicans feel like they might have a shot in that governor's mm-hmm. race out there. You live there. What do you think? Christine Drazen all the way. Got to have right. Republicans because this Democrat stuff is not working. It is, I think, a sign of the times that a Republican nominee or a Republican candidate for governor in Oregon has a very realistic chance of winning. She's been ahead in a number of these polls. It's awfully close. Neil, appreciate you being out there in Oregon. Sometimes it's pretty crazy out there. Try to stay sane if you can. 833 456 1300. Let's see, Maryland in the DMV. Frank, you are up next on The Guy Benson Show. Yeah, I, uh, my number one issue is trust, which blends into basically I, I don't think that many Democrats, uh, other than some of the elites and academics who intentionally are trying to do uh, things that aren't great for the country, uh, I think a lot of them don't even know how to trust uh, themselves enough to see that uh, the obvious issues related to the economy, for instance, and the easy, well, easy, but straightforward ways to fix it as far as energy independence and reduction in uh, spending. Um, and I think that 
that that that just drives all the issues for me. And even like in the Herschel Walker case, he's got some funny stuff in his past, but it seems like he's he's come up to um, he's been honest about it for a long time. So, you know, even in that case, uh, I, I can't find a Democrat that I feel the same way about anywhere. So trust. It comes down to trust for you. Frank in Maryland, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. What is your number one issue? There's a bunch out there. If you had to pick one as you head to the polls, what is animating you this year? Let's go back to Georgia. Paula is listening on our great affiliate, 106.3 Extra. Paula, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Hey, hey Guy. My um, biggest issue is inflation. How's it affecting you? Well, um, going to the grocery store, buying gas. I live on a fixed income of Social Security disability, and when there's no extra coming in and no way to get extra, it just puts a hurting on you. Yeah, you're so squeezed. I mean, it's just so tough. And obviously, you know, the Democrats say it's not our fault. It's happening all over the world, but it's worse here than a lot of places. And even their own economists say it's because they keep spending all this crazy amount of money now paula if you're willing to tell us down there in georgia what's your game plan on voting this year um i voted yesterday and went a straight republican ticket all right camp walker and the rest i did even though i mean they all have their flaws and their issues but there's not a one of us that lives that don't have flaws and issues but i just can't vote democratic because i just don't trust what they're doing i mean they're putting our country in such a hard financial situation that it's just going to be hard to get out of it's going to be hard on our future generations to come back from yeah. so, and it's hard on you right now that's the other thing right it's the future it's the I've, it's the present it's just absolutely. it's tough well paula i'm glad you're absolutely. out there i'm glad you're listening really appreciate it thanks for being vulnerable and thanks for sharing that with us here on the show today uh, we do appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. What is driving your vote more than anything in the 2022 midterms? We're getting so close. Everyone's polling it. We know what the polls say. What is your reality in your life? Let's go to Luke, Long Island, New York. You're up next. Hi, Luke. Hi. My number one issue is crime. Tell us about that. Why? I work in Midtown Manhattan, and the crime is crazy. Some of the women that I work with have to leave the office early to make sure that they get home before it gets dark out. I don't understand this, that the people are pushing people in front of the subway and running away. I just don't get it. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, the, it's like every day there's some horrible story coming out of New York, and then even some of the stuff is sort of spilling into the suburbs as well. Long Island's interesting. I mean, there's discussion that Ron DeSantis might be coming up to campaign for Lee Zeldin in the coming days. Uh, Glenn Youngkin is coming to Westchester County to to stump for Lee Zeldin. I wonder if they're seeing in the polling that this is real, that Hochul might actually lose. What do you think? When you talk to your friends and colleagues, could a Democratic governor actually lose in your state for real? I think so. I think I think this is the year. Lee Zeldin all the way. All right. I mean, it's I still have trouble believing. I mean, that would be the upset of the cycle if it happened. But I'm not completely writing it off. Hochul well, is I'll not you, looking. There, there, there is Zeldin signs all over the place. I think the town that I live in is pretty blue. 
honestly, and there's Zeldin signs all over the place, and I don't see any Hochul signs. Yeah, and and she she's not acting like a confident leader and a and a confident candidate right now. That that is certainly true, and the polling shows it certainly tightening. So, Luke, we will see very soon. Thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. Down to Florida. Rob, you're up on the Guy Benson Show. Hello. Hey, thanks, Guy. My issue is education. I'm a father with three school-age kids, and it seems the the direction things are going nationwide is has been to cut parents out of the process and promote a worldview rather than the education they actually need. Have you voted already, or are you waiting for Election Day? Not yet. It'll be on Election Day. I want some time to research my local candidates. All right, and then statewide, Republicans or split ticket or what? Statewide, yeah, I'm an independent, no party, and four years ago I did not vote for DeSantis, but he has 100% earned my trust these past four years. So I'm, go. I'm going with the Republican this year. All right, Robin Florida, thanks for the call. Very quickly, Cynthia in Minnesota. Cynthia, 10 seconds, what's your big issue? Abortion. I'm voting straight Republican. I haven't voted yet. It'll be Election Day. I'm pro-life, and i got to say I love Christine. She's great. Oh, so do we. And that's a great call to end on. An abortion voter, just not the way Democrats were hoping for. (laughs) Great calls. Thank you all for weighing in on The Guy Benson Show. We continue right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. And it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! So this is a callback to a story that we covered two years ago. It was part of the absolute insanity that was 2020. Just occasionally go back and look at news headlines over the summer of 2020 and into the fall even ignoring the presidential campaign. What an absolute basket case this country was. I understand that there was the pandemic on and people were dying and people were locked in their homes and all that disruption. It just went well beyond that. There was a lot of unrest, including violent unrest in the streets of many American cities. Following the murder of George Floyd, some people took that incident upon themselves, took that opportunity to wreak havoc to commit crimes, to loot, to steal, to riot, to commit arson, even to kill. And while there were, I think, some changes needed in some cases, and certainly justice needed to be brought to the murderer, which, by the way, happened over the course of time, using our criminal justice system, not through mob violence, the mob side of it was very scary. And it was, in some cases, cheered on, encouraged, at least indulged, or ignored by a lot of people in politics, mostly in the Democratic Party. And the left-wing grassroots in this country, the activist class, that element found itself in the grips of a mania. And the cancel culture, woke mob stuff was as psychotic as I've ever seen it over a a span of roughly a year. So that is the era that we're going back to here for today's Woke Tales. There was a guy at the New York Times named James Bennett. He was one of the opinion editors there. 
and when there was rioting in the streets and chaos and lawlessness, you'll recall that Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, penned an op-ed that was published in the New York Times calling for the National Guard, the troops, to come into some major cities and restore order. It was a controversial take, although polling at the time determined that most Americans actually agreed with Senator Cotton. Right? It's upsides, downsides. You can make an argument in either direction. But it wasn't some sort of really out-of-control, scary, frightening, unconscionable suggestion by a U.S. senator. Again, as I said at the time, staring at all of the horrible images happening all across the country and looking at our screens with this stuff playing out seemingly every night, most Americans agreed with Cotton at the time. So he wrote the op-ed piece in the New York Times. They published it. James Bennett was responsible for that. And an absolute meltdown ensued within the newsroom, within the New York Times, which was kind of like ground zero of wokery, certainly in the mainstream media, where you had predominantly young, hyper-woke, so-called journalists basically just calling the shots for that newspaper based on whatever their sensibilities demanded. Almost like a religion where the rules change constantly based on this mob consensus, which is extremely capricious and inconsistent and hyperbolic. It's almost you know a feature of this pseudo-religion that they had. And you saw some of the ringleaders like the 1619 Project Lady and others saying, you know, this is an outrage that we published this. In fact, the publication of this op-ed by a U.S. senator in our pages makes journalists of color at the New York Times physically unsafe. Not it's troubling or it's alarming or it's triggering or anything like that. No, physically unsafe. The words are literally dangerous for people of color working in the newsroom, which is just a crazy thing to say, but it was very quickly established as the dominant thought, or at least the bullying thought that got its way inside the New York Times. So for the crime of publishing an op-ed by a sitting United States senator expressing a sentiment shared by most Americans, James Bennett was fired. He lost his job. A scalp was claimed in the name of wokeness and equity and racial justice or whatever. A total embarrassment. I don't know James Bennett. I've never met him. I may never meet him. I'm sure he is not a conservative. But that was wrong, what happened to him. And it was just sort of caught up in this very strange dogmatic moment. And his career was sacrificed on the altar of wokeness and the leadership of the newspaper absolutely gutless they had had a few other incidents where they ended up letting people go because of these same similar demands from the same types of people in this case they just were like oh sorry don't hate us we're firing him don't you worry so just recently this guy bennett has written a piece sort of publicly reacting to the whole thing two years later for the first time in a really meaningful way and he's obviously angry and still bitter about it i think he should be He said that he was treated basically like garbage by the newspaper. His loyalty to the institution and professionalism was weaponized against him. And he found himself out on his rear end without a job because of this whirlwind that was just, again, manic. 
There was no rationality to it. There was no sense of actual proportion or justice or fairness. It was just, you remember how everything felt, just these whipped up controversies. And the more influence lefty wokesters had in a certain scenario, the worse it was within those contexts. So finally, weeks after James Bennett wrote his piece, Eric Wemple, who's a media critic at the Washington Post, has written, I think, a good story about what happened, looking back on it, admitting candidly that the reason that a lot of people didn't stand up for Bennett as they should have at the time, including Wemple himself, was because they were scared of the mob. They were scared of what the mob would do to them and their careers, which I think is, of course, accurate, but also quite telling. Here's another little nugget from Wemple's piece. Quote, We have asked about 30 New York Times staffers whether they still believe their danger tweets and whether there was any merit in Bennett's retort. Not one of them replied with an on-the-record defense. Such was the depth of conviction behind a central argument in Lafair Cotton. Right, so they all lined up and declared themselves in physical danger or their colleagues of color in physical, literal danger because of words printed in a newspaper by Tom Cotton, which is why they said Bennett had to go. And here we are two years hence, and Eric Wemple contacted and called up dozens of them, people who went along with the crowd, and not a single one of them would defend that position that they stated at the time on the record, not one. What cowards. Absolutely craven. They were scared for their own career. They were caught up in this moment of nuttiness, and they were willing to send a colleague to the unemployment line for no reason just to save their own ass. That's what it was. They don't believe it. They didn't believe it. They won't defend it now. I'm sure they're annoyed that anyone's asking questions about it. And that's another important thing to think about and to remember about the mob. When you empower the mob and you cave to the mob, I'm not saying you never apologize. If you've done something wrong, then apologize. And there should be consequences for behavior that's bad. I'm not saying that because we're upset with cancel culture, there's no such thing ever as accountability. I'm just saying it has gotten totally distorted and twisted and has gone way too far. And when you allow mobs like this to call the shots... Not only do they develop a taste for blood, basically, and it reinforces itself in a very toxic way, you are also empowering people who ultimately are very weak and very cowardly. They are bullies who need to be confronted, not catered to, not capitulated to. I'm not sure it's really a lot of comfort to James Bennett that, oh, now it can be said years later that he got a raw deal. Although, interestingly, and sort of amusingly, I'm seeing some lefties talking about this whole episode, sort of the clearing of the air years later, as something of a breakthrough moment, and proof now that we've moved past the craziness of the worst throes of cancel culture. Like, okay, the conservatives can calm down now, things are reaching an equilibrium again. Except I don't believe that. I don't know why we should believe that. It took them two years, in many cases, to admit how grotesquely unfair this episode was. 
Has the dynamic changed where the next time there's a big, angry mob in a workplace or in some sort of environment led by people who have a lot of political capital and they're wielding it like weapons on purpose because it's empowering and it's fun and they get a rush from it? And that's happening. And they're the types of people that you are kind of scared of and you want to have your career continue. Do you think the outcome next time would be different? Or would we wait another two years? For the confessionals and the apologies. What does James Bennett get to make up for what happened to him? Nothing. By the way, one more note, only tangentially related, but since I brought up Senator Tom Cotton, let me remind you that he was also one of the people, one of the leading adherents to the theory that COVID was a virus that was genetically engineered and escaped from a lab. He was putting that out there long before a lot of other people were. He wasn't saying he knew for a fact, but he was saying, hey, this is possible. He was pilloried as an agent of disinformation, dangerous, this stuff was censored, he was ripped to shreds by the supposed arbiters of truth in our society. The whole possibility that it might have escaped from a lab was labeled disinformation by people who then sort of scuttled that months later. Oh, well, well, on second thought, maybe never mind. Just like maybe the Hunter Biden laptop wasn't disinformation, but then they'll just move on to the next thing to label disinformation in order to disqualify a conversation that they don't want to have or to wield power or to you name it, whatever their new agenda is. Use the D word with no reflection about their big misfires previously, like this one. I raised the issue because we haven't really talked about COVID in a while, and the fact that we still don't have a definitive answer on how this thing started that led to millions of deaths worldwide, that is disturbing to me. I think the reason that we don't have the answer is because the Chinese Communist Party ensured that we wouldn't get it by not allowing real investigations, destroying evidence, lying, etc. But there is a new Senate report out this week. I see one scientist who used to be much more critical of the lab leak theory He's quoting the Senate report that says, quote, based on the analysis of the publicly available information, it appears reasonable to conclude that the COVID-19 pandemic was more likely than not the result of a research related incident, end quote. That is not definitive. That's not a final answer, but now a more likely than not assessment, which sounds about right to me. And yet exactly those types of sentences were verboten, suppressed censored, decried as misinformation and disinformation. And once again, it was Tom Cotton getting clobbered on a lot of it. Dr. Fauci went out of his way to tamp down that theory, to downplay it, to dismiss it. Oh, and one of his buddies sent him an email that we found out about later, thanking him personally for doing so, for downplaying the theory. That guy ran an organization that steered a lot of American money taxpayer money to, wait for it, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We covered this at the time. I just want to make sure that we don't forget about it. It's a really huge thing that happened. And some people asking the right kinds of questions were stifled and attacked and assailed. And I'm not sure Dr. Fauci has ever really adequately accounted for some of the dirty work he and others did to discredit an active, plausible, 
if not probable theory at the time. And it very much felt like politics there as well. So a bit of a meandering segment here. I wanted to bring some of this to your attention. It all comes back down to woke tales in the end. And with that, we will step aside. We will come right back with much more of the Guy Benson Show still to come. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Today, the most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took off. We need to keep making that progress by having energy companies bring down the cost of a gallon of gas that reflects the cost they're paying for a barrel of oil. Back on the Guy Benson Show, there's a lot of illiteracy and wrongness there that we just heard from President Biden in New York yesterday, but we can start with the most obvious one. He said it's 3.39 a gallon now on average, and it's a lot higher a lot of places, I will just point out. He said, quote, down from over $5 a gallon when I took office. Fact check, pants on fire, 18 Pinocchios on fire. We all remember that. When Biden took office, gas was less than half of $5 a gallon for gasoline. It spiked up to $5 on his watch. That is not what he inherited as he said and claimed in New York yesterday. It's at 239 or so when he took office, not $5. Is he lying? Does he not know? Does he not remember? Is it confusion, dishonesty? It's hard to tell sometimes with him. But he also said this in Cut 12. So economic growth is up, the price of inflation is down, real incomes are, on, going, are up, and the price of gas is down. Folks, continue to spend but now a more stable pace than during our rapid recovery last year. I mean, he's bragging about this stuff, and we've told you, Democratic pollsters say this is an extremely poor talking point. It works the opposite way than they would hope. It turns people off when they try to brag this way. It's also wrong. Since Biden took office, economic growth has been negative in the last two quarters, now anemic but back up. In the last quarter, people expecting, in many cases, a double-digit recession to come. Inflation is not down. It is still way up near 40-year highs with a couple bad reports in a row, worse than expected. Real incomes are down, not going up. The price of gas is way up, despite his lies, like the one we just debunked. Like, it's just night and day, up is down. Opposite stuff. From Joe Biden, just lying like crazy all over the place. People aren't buying it, but I think it's always important to set the record straight. Oh, and by the way, in case you're wondering if the administration has any doubt, any self-reflection, any mood or appetite to change, shift course, KJP was asked about it, at least on the personnel side, just a few days ago, cut 21. Polls show that uh, voters at this point, the primary concern heading into the midterms is inflation in the economy. By a two to one margin, voters trust Republicans more than Democrats to handle the economy. I wonder, given this sort of majority sentiment of voters, is the president considering making any changes to his economic team after the midterms? No. Is he considering making any changes to the economic team after the midterms? KJP? No. In short, Nah, we're good. We got this. That's their attitude. If you agree, you know what to do in 11 days. If not, well, there's another choice. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. 
Hope you didn't bruise your credit card too badly this Black Friday. It's a best of Guy Benson. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The best of the Guy Benson Show won't cost you a thing. Now that's what I call a Black Friday deal. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad you've tuned in. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free, on demand, every single day. We do recommend that. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, if you cannot listen live as we air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. On social media, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at Guy Benson Show. We have some bonus content online on social from time to time, so please do check that out. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. hour, Eastern Time on the Fox News Channel. I would tell you what to expect, but I don't know what to expect. You never really do, going into the lair of Greg Gutfeld, whom we had on the show just yesterday here in studio. So set your DVRs or stay up late with us this evening. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. In fact, at a cocktail party we were at last night, more on that later, Someone told me that because of our sponsorship here, he tried the long drink, and he's all in. He said he likes the black can the best, the stronger drink, the longer drink. It's delicious. Always drink responsibly, of course, 21-plus only. Check out where they're sold near you, that expanding map, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now from the border, Eagle Pass, Texas, is our colleague Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News. And, Bill, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. Always a pleasure to join you. I want to start with this story out of El Paso, Texas. This was reported by the New York Post. They had information that the city council there is alleging, at least members of it, that the mayor was under pressure from the Biden administration not to declare a state of emergency over the border. That has been now alleged multiple times, including in public, against the mayor and against that city's leadership. The mayor now pushing back, giving some interviews, saying, well, yes, the administration did ask him not to declare a state of emergency, but he agreed with them on the merits that it wasn't necessary. And so he didn't. He didn't bow to pressure. The whole thing very much smells like politics, though, and an administration that is much more focused on political optics and limiting political fallout than actually handling the substance of the problem. Bill, what are you hearing about this El Paso kerfuffle? Well, the thing that jumps about jumps out to me about El Paso is the federal government is reimbursing them for everything that they're doing. And that's something that the mayor has pointed out is, hey, we really appreciate all this help that we're getting from the federal government. So I don't know if most people know this, but El Paso, run by Democrats, has bused more than 11,000 migrants to New York City. Governor Abbott has only done about 3,300. So El Paso has done more than triple what Governor Abbott is doing. But they've taken no criticism, and they're being reimbursed for it while the state of Texas is paying for its own buses. So it kind of makes you wonder a little bit. Well, you know, hang when- on, Bill. Whoa, 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 because I need to understand this. If you've got Greg Abbott sending a couple of thousand of these migrants to various blue jurisdiction sanctuary cities, and he's being accused of human trafficking, that was a talking point we heard for a while, but the Democratic city of El Paso, Texas— is doing triple that number, and they're getting paid back by the people accusing Abbott of human trafficking. 
Is that not also human trafficking, or does that definition have no meaning in this context? One would wonder that, right? <laughs> it's it's truly bizarre. And, yeah, it was actually one of the El Paso City Council members, Claudia Rodriguez. She's the one who said that Mayor Oscar Leeser of El Paso told her in a private phone conversation that the White House has asked me not to declare a state of emergency. Apparently, several of the council members were pushing him to do so uh, because they wanted to open it up to get more funding. I mean, I'm not going to lie. El Paso has absolutely been overrun in recent weeks. Uh, In recent days, they were getting more than 2,000 illegal crossings per day. That's more than what we were seeing here in Eagle Pass. It had gotten so bad that there were migrants camped out under highway overpasses. Border Patrol started doing street releases because all the NGOs and shelters were full. So if you go to El Paso, there were, you know, hundreds of Venezuelan migrants just sleeping out on the city streets. And that is why the city started busting these migrants to New York City. But exactly what you just said, what a difference in reaction, right? You know, El Paso does it, and nobody says a word, and they get reimbursed by the federal government, a.k.a. you and I, the taxpayer. Governor Abbott does it, and he's accused of human trafficking, doing it for politics. It's the worst thing in the world. And he's done a minuscule number to New York City compared to what El Paso has done. So I I understand that the mayor of El Paso is kind of pushing back against the narrative that the White House didn't ask him to do it. But, you know, it it, it almost makes you beg the question, did he not do it because they were promised they're going to get all this federal reimbursement? Well, I mean, that's the that's the obvious Occam's razor response to this. Twofold. Number one, Abbott and DeSantis and Ducey are getting criticized because they're Republicans and the Democrats don't like Republicans and journalists are mostly Democrats. So they also don't like Republicans. Point one. Point two. It would make sense to your suggestion right there that the reason that the El Paso leadership chose not to declare a state of emergency was because the administration effectively begged them not to, understanding that that would look problematic, the optics would be bad, the politics would be bad, and there was sort of a handshake done over a phone, which is you don't make our political lives harder by declaring officially an emergency, and we will get you federal taxpayer money to help you deal with this problem, effectively an emergency without declaring it. You get what you want. We avoid the political headache. That at least seems, let's just say, highly plausible. Highly plausible. And did you see how much it's possibly costing? El Paso Matters, a local media outlet in El Paso, uh, reported that as recently as mid-September, the city of El Paso is spending up to $300,000 every single day for migrant food, shelter, and travel. So that math adds up very quickly, and that is now FEMA, a.k.a. the U.S. taxpayers, putting the bill for that. Yep, and it's like they want to do everything except fix the problem, and they want to do it in such a way that as few people pay attention to their contributions and their responsibility as possible. That very much is what it looks like from the outside as someone who has been watching this pretty carefully here for the better part of two years. You mentioned New York City, Bill. Eric Adams put out this video where he's bragging about how welcoming New York has been to these migrants and how New York is doing it the right way. And it's, you know, really good and uh, very compassionate and all of that. Here is what it sounds like. Cut 21. The history of this country has always been tied to welcoming those who are fleeing harm. And that is the spirit of this country. It must be done in an organized way. And I I believe that we will always be responsible as, as New Yorkers to make sure whoever comes here, we're going to do our job, and that's what we have done. I think that New York has been a role model on how to effectively use our infrastructure 
to address the crisis and make sure we treat people in a humane way. And that's what we have done. And they're showing a bunch of tents and the way that people are being treated and welcomed in New York City. First of all, it's important to fact check. There have been millions of people who have entered the country illegally under President Biden, a fraction of whom are actually fleeing harm and have bona fide claims to asylum. I know they want to pretend that everyone coming here illegally is someone escaping some horrible situation and they're just an asylum seeker and we need to respect that. It's true for some of them. It is not true for the vast majority of them no matter how they try to frame up this debate. And then as I listen to this and I watch the images, it kind of seems like Eric Adams has flip-flopped back to being in favor of sanctuary policies because he was all about sanctuary city, New York City, until the consequences of that started to show up at his doorstep. He kind of freaked out at that point and was talking about how this was a burden. No one asked for this in New York. We're angry. This is too much, and it's a state of emergency. Now he's back to self-congratulation about how New York is doing it the right way. It sounds like he's kind of inviting more of it. I wonder if some migrants might see the video and say, yeah, let's head to New York, and maybe Governor Abbott can fire up more of the buses, because this sounds like an invitation for more now from the mayor of New York City. It certainly does, and it wouldn't surprise me if those migrants were possibly enticed by hearing that and seeing the videos. I saw a video on social media yesterday showing the inside of one of these shelters that might be what you were displaying just now, but big, nice TVs, even Xboxes set up. I mean, it's, it's nicer than like some of the hotels that are down here at the border. Um, so the, so these, these migrants, yeah, absolutely. If they know they can get into the U.S., get free transportation, go to a city of their choice, hey, they get to stay in a shelter, get a hot meal, watch some TV, play some video games for a little bit. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If you're coming from somewhere else, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and if you're a Republican governor, with your resources already completely overwhelmed and stretched, if you've got Eric Adams in New York City saying, hey, come on up, we're great here, look how compassionate and welcoming we are, I mean, that strikes me as like, come one, come all, get those buses rolling, get those planes flying, and maybe we can have like, I don't know, a bidding war for illegal immigrants among these blue state jurisdictions and see how the taxpayers of those cities and states react to all of it because there are probably a lot of taxpayers whose living conditions are a lot worse than what they're seeing in a video like this. And I could imagine for some people that might just rub them the wrong way. On this front, Bill, I'm sure you saw this, and I have to get your reaction to it. The Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, recently gave an interview where he was again trying to spin the border crisis. It's always a deflection, always a blame shift. The new novel spin that I hadn't heard before is that critics of the border crisis who say that the administration is not enforcing the law and effectively creating an open border situation or certainly not a controlled or closed border situation, the fact that people are calling out the administration in those terms unto itself is an advertisement to smugglers and to illegal immigrants and enticing them to come because they're hearing from the critics that the border isn't closed and therefore they think the border isn't closed. It's like he's trying to turn reality on its head and say, no, they're not coming here because of the reality that we've created. They're coming because of the critics of the reality that we've created. I'll give him this. It is definitely novel. It strikes me as shameless, but this is the latest attempt. 
It, it was a truly bizarre statement. Essentially, what he's saying is that people pointing out that the border is not secure is the problem. Not that not the fact that the border isn't secure, right? But th- this administration, they've always just been concerned about the optics, the optics of what's going on down here. Hence that El Paso story with possibly telling the mayor not to declare a state of emergency, possibly the same thing with what happened with the horse whipping hoax, right? They had 15,000 people under that bridge. They had to find something that diverts the media's attention away, and boy, oh boy, did it work like a charm. So this is just more of the same. I mean, he's going to point out the fact that whether it's reporters or critics saying that the border isn't secure, that's the problem, not the fact that the border isn't secure. And, and guy, just this morning alone, we've seen more than 700 people cross illegally since the sun came up. But that's not the problem, right? It's the fact that we're doing live shots. Yeah, no, no, us talking about it right here. We're the problem, Bill. Noticing the reality and talking about it is the problem, not the reality and the policies undergirding that reality. I mean, it's just it is a wild, wild gambit rhetorically that he's attempting. And I guess in one of their meetings, this is what they came up with. They were going to try going down this path. I think it is insulting to our collective intelligence. I don't think it will work. And maybe, last topic here, Bill, someone who might have slept through that meeting is the Border Patrol chief, Chris Magnus. I'm sure you noticed this Politico story about him a couple days ago. He's getting thrown under the bus by the White House saying that he's disengaged. He's not really focused on CBP operations. He's doing other stuff. He asks questions in meetings that are totally off sort of the deep end, down rabbit holes. And he's often falling asleep or nodding off during meetings. I am not here to say that he's doing a good job. You would know better about his reputation down there among frontline agents and, and all that sort of thing. It does strike me as a political hit piece planted by the White House to try to scapegoat some guy who, of course, has some power, but ultimately he's trying to carry out policies that are being handed down way above his head. I am open to the argument that he's doing a bad job and he is not fit for the position. But also, I'm not sure any chief of Border Patrol could actually really get his or her arms around this problem so long as the Biden administration policies remain intact. Yeah, and you know what's weird about this is I think this might be one of the only circumstances I'm aware of where the Biden White House and former Trump border officials are in agreement here. My phone blew up when this article came out. Former Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott, former CBP Commissioner Mark Morgan uh, said this article is spot on, as did multiple CBP sources that I have. They described this guy as more of an activist than wanting to do anything on the enforcement side of CBP. He came briefings, and former Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott tells Fox News he briefed Commissioner Magnus for months and then sat down with him in a meeting, and Commissioner Magnus was essentially saying, Oh, uh, what, what, what's that title late thing again? Can you explain that again? Uh, it, it, every, every former board official I've talked to said this guy has no idea what he's doing. And apparently that's what the Biden White House is agreeing to as well. You know, somebody leaked that from within the White House. I'm still kind of wondering who, who did that and what the political motivation was behind that. Well, they do this, um, right? They knife their own people sometimes when they're causing a political problem. They see a scapegoating opportunity. Sounds like Magnus probably deserves on some level to be scapegoated, although, again, he's not the one setting policy. But if he's doing such a bad job and falling asleep in all of this stuff, they could fire him. But that hasn't happened because it seems like no one gets fired over there, no matter how badly they fail. Exactly. And they're the ones who hired him. Right. This wasn't a Trump. This wasn't a Trump holdover. They're the ones who hired him. He was the former police chief in Tucson, I believe. And the biggest criticism has been he's not engaged and he doesn't know anything about 
uh, immigration enforcement, essentially. Didn't know the difference between Title 42, Title 48, isn't engaged in the job, and hasn't been sitting in on the briefings when it comes to what's going on down here at the southern border. But you're absolutely right. No matter what he's doing wrong or if he is or isn't doing the job correctly, the problem comes from above him, right? It's the policy set forth by DHS and by this administration. And that policy began before President Biden was ever even president. When he was on the campaign trail debating, what did he say? And that's what all the migrants heard. If I'm elected, we should surge the border. We should surge the border with as many people as possible. And that is exactly what has happened. Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News, joining us from Eagle Pass, Texas today. Bill, always enjoy it. Thank you very much for your time, as always. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. And the Guy Benson Show continues right after this. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Happy Hour Vibes on the Guy Benson Show. And I was happy yesterday. The Yankees winning Game 5, do or die against Cleveland. 5-1 to one the final in the Bronx yesterday afternoon. Ending in the early evening and off to the ALCS go the Yankees. And it started off actually well with Giancarlo Stanton hitting a three-run bomb in the first inning. They never looked back. So by the skin of their teeth, the Yankees move on. They were down in that series, best of five, two to one. Then they won the last two and advanced. Their prize for that is a flight to Houston to play the Astros, the best team, I think, in the American League. And the Yankees have struggled mightily with the Astros for years especially in the playoffs. So the NLCS already underway in the National League. The Phillies squeaking out a 2 nothing win against the San Diego Padres, two teams playing very well in the National League. I am hopeful that the Yankees will win this series against Houston. I am not overly optimistic about it. That ballpark is a house of horrors for the Yankees, and they have still a lot of injuries. I'm just not sure they can pull it together and get it done. It would be awesome to get that monkey off their back this season. There's certainly a lot of talent on both rosters. Even though I'll be rooting hard for New York, if I had to bet money, I would pick Houston. My brain is telling me Houston in six. My heart is telling me Yankees in seven. Dan, you're a Yankee fan. Are you as jaded as I am? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they hit 182 against the Cleveland Guardians in that entire series is not boding well to go against the hot Astros. I tend to agree, and we'll find out starting tonight, game one, in Houston. The happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show continues. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour. It's The Guy Benson Show from New York City. Earlier today here in studio, we welcome back our friend and colleague, Dana Perino, co-host of America's Newsroom and The Five, both on Fox News Channel. Always great to catch up with Dana. Here's part of that chat. Joining me now here in studio is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, New York Times bestselling author. (laughs) Everything will be okay. Now in paperback. And let's see, we had Greg here yesterday. We had Jesse Tarloff here yesterday. So now we have like 60% of The Five in the span of two days here on the show in studio. It's great to see you. Gotta get Jesse Waters in here. Uh, I agree. Hear that, Jesse? Yeah, Jesse. I know he's super busy with his two shows, but guess who else has two shows? You. Guess who else has two shows? Greg. Yeah. They, they managed to pull it off. Hello. I'm just saying. Let's clip that and send it to Jesse. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. Okay, Dana, I want to start, before we get into some of these specific races, you just said something right before we came back from break. 
Just a cautionary word to Republicans and conservative voters. I think there's a lot of triumphalism out there. The polling is certainly looking a lot better, but... I know I've all, basically don't start measuring the drapes yet for your new offices. Um, the, the momentum is clearly on the Republican side and for good reason. It's not manufactured. Um, and even the headlines in the mainstream media is saying, wow, well, look at this. And I think the New York Times poll was shocking to people the other day where they had women, independent women swinging. They were plus 16 for Democrats in August and in October, they're plus 18 for Republicans. That has really focused the mind. That means that people are not just going to vote um, party line necessarily, right? Independence. You tend to vote with the with the party that you always go with, and even though you say you're an independent. But in this case, it looks like the Republicans are winning them over, and partly is because the other part of that poll showed that on the issues people care about the most, whatever that issue is, the Republicans were winning, mm-hmm. 44 to 36. I mean, that- so I just think that one of the things that the Republicans should think about, and I'm sure some of them are, is that we can't have everybody believe that the Republicans have this thing in the bag because you don't actually have it in the bag until the votes are counted. Right. And if people think, oh, Republicans are going to win, I don't have to turn out to vote, then you could be caught short. Right. There's almost like this double edged sword on one hand on the positive side for the Republicans is sometimes stuff can become sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy yep. where it's like, okay, so-and-so is going to win. I want to be on the winning side. Things do suck right now. Okay, I'm going to vote Republican too, and there's like a bandwagon effect. But there's this other side that you're warning about, which is if enough people believe that it's a done deal, then they get a little lazy, they yep. don't show up, and then what is expected doesn't just magically materialize. People have to actually go and do yeah. the voting. On the other hand, it is also demoralizing if you're a Democrat right now thinking – why should I even turn out if the Republicans are already going to win? And if the headlines and even the mainstream press are saying the Republicans have got the momentum, that could hurt them as well. Let's talk about Georgia for a moment. Okay. We played a soundbite in the last segment from Stacey Abrams on MSNBC this morning. She was asked a question about inflation and why it's a much bigger concern to voters than abortion. She decided to try to tie the two issues together and cut 23. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are, it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out. Dana, from this worldview, is there anything abortion can't solve? <laughs> right. Uh, the, the answer to, to uh, inflation is abortion. Kill more babies. Ooh. That doesn't really um, bode very well. However, let me tell her that at least she's honest because this is what she thinks and she's not alone. Now, I will also say this. We had a woman on newsroom the other day, an undecided voter, a uh, reverend, uh, and she said she was liked. She is a pro-life person, but she doesn't think the Republicans do enough to help women once they decide to have that baby and to help take care of that baby. And that she was leaning on towards voting for Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, because she thought that would be he would be more likely to help women like that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and people have their own calculus for all of this mm-hmm. stuff. I saw Eric Erickson, who's a radio host. He's based down in Georgia, pretty plugged in down there. He said what he's hearing from door knockers and then internal polling that he has access to in Georgia, that the top lines are basically tied in that race. I saw one yesterday that had 46-46. 
but the undecided seem to be breaking for Herschel Walker. Yep. And you look around and what's happening in the country, it's not that hard to understand why, especially if you've got someone like Stacey Abrams out there saying things like this and people say, mm-hmm. ooh, that, I'm not. Like that's your solution? I'm not for that. <laughs> right. And then the Republican ticket starts to look perhaps more mm-hmm. attractive. There was another poll that I referenced in the last hour out of Pennsylvania, Dana, where you've got this really interesting Senate race, Dr. Oz, John Fetterman. And Fetterman had the you know 11-point lead or whatever it was over the summer. I never believed that. But Oz was behind, and he is just chip, chip, chipping away. AARP poll out yesterday has it a two-point race, virtual tie. And the write-up said the undecideds in the pool skew Republican. Yep. So the question is, do those people come home, quote-unquote? And if they do and some of these independents start tipping and there's enough ticket splitting, I mean, Oz can win this thing, I think. Yes, I, I've always thought that he could. My full interview with Dana Perino, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show in its entirety, every day on demand for free when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last night, there was an event here at Fox, a nice little cocktail party. I spoke. It was very fun. The team was here. Elements of the team went out after the party, apparently. And someone partied until the very end of the night. I'll let you guess who that was, and we'll ask this person all about it when we come back. Hope you didn't bruise your credit card too badly this Black Friday. It's a best of Guy Benson. Home stretch on this Wednesday from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, sharp. Fox News Channel, along with that whole crew. Looking forward to it. So last night here at Fox, we had a fun little event for Fox News Radio, Fox News Audio. America is listening. And some of our partners from around the country, really all sorts of different organizations and groups that partner with us in various capacities, were all invited to the 12th floor here at Fox News headquarters, Studio J, which is this beautiful studio where America's newsroom originates, Cudlow on Fox Business, that's Hannity's studio as well. It's a really nice place. So, in fact, I did Cudlow's show yesterday. During our show, we taped a little bit. I went down there, did some live TV, and within an hour and a half, they had transformed this space into New York's hottest club. It had everything. Sushi, open bar, microphones, YY. I mean, it had everything. And it was fun. They had music playing. They had the beverages flowing past hors d'oeuvres. It was fancy. It was a little bit glamorous, I have to say. And it was really the power of the Fox brand. All of the graphics were looking great. They had lowered the lights. It was just a spectacularly executed event. Our boss... John Sylvester said a few words. They played a sizzle reel up on this giant screen about all the offerings of Fox News Audio, and we had a little cameo appearance in that montage, very well produced. Then Brian Kilmeade said a couple things. He was the first speaker. Then he handed the microphone off to me. I talked a little bit about the show and my background here at Fox, and then it was on to Jimmy Fallon, who did some stand-up comedy with some very interesting material. There were times that I was covering my face physically, laughing, but covering my face while laughing. And then it was back to the drinking and the eating and the carousing and all of that. So fabulous event, excellent 
A plus tip of the cap to everyone who was a part of it and really organized it. I think we put a very strong foot forward for the Fox News audio brand. Proud to be a part of it. Our whole team was there. We took some photos. There was a photographer, a red carpet, step and repeat. It was cool. I have to admit, I hadn't gone to the gym all day. I'd been up early, traveling. I really wanted to sweat it out. So I did not eat or drink at the party. And there was a lot of good stuff, and it was really hard for me to restrain myself. But I did. And then when it was over and sort of petering out and they needed, I think, the studio back for another show, I went and checked into my hotel for the first time, went to the gym, and then met a friend for a very quick dinner. What I didn't realize was the rest of the team, at least parts of the rest of our team here at the show, they were going out for some after festivities festivities if you will and you can guess who is leading the charge on this one producer christine i know wyatt was along for the ride dan did you go or did you call it a night i called it a night i i was pressured into it by a certain person you're about to talk about but i i decided to go home all right so you went home i went to the hotel went to the gym had dinner and went to sleep because i was tired apparently the party continued for hours like four hours-ish after the official event ended. And I got a sense that things might be still flowing by some of the text messages I was getting in the group chat from producer Christine, including one of her and a giant oversized pretzel that she was eating. She was very proud of that. I was like, okay, they're still out. They're still having fun. I started to get bits and pieces of the story today. Apparently, there was a crew out for quite a long time. Now, Christine is angry that we're talking about this. She said she won't participate in the conversation. She is boycotting today's home stretch because she doesn't want to talk about what she did last night, which is fair. She might not remember because apparently she didn't remember several things that happened. Wyatt, you were part of this after party for a while. What happened? Um, guy, we just we just went out for a few drinks. It was just uh, a normal happy hour. We it, it wasn't an intervention like I did promise last week we were going to have the intervention about the vacuums. But yeah, this that's was just tomorrow. yeah. <laughs> this was just a, a good old just have a drink with some with colleagues. Your colleagues. Yep. Yeah. And there were other people from this floor and this department all out. Uh, did you have an alcoholic beverage or two, Wyatt? I may have had one or two. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're 22, right? Yes. Okay. And. Christine is apparently wanting to get in on this, but no, she's boycotting. She's saying that Wyatt had two whole drinks. Wyatt, you also said that Christine tried a new alcoholic beverage this time because you had convinced her recently to try margaritas because she thought she hated them. Turns out she really doesn't. What did you swindle her into trying this time? Yeah, it's actually kind of amazing. Every time I come to New York, I get you to try a new new alcoholic beverage. But we What, what an influence. It's like <laughs> it's going the other way. You're getting her, although she's not hard to persuade. You're like, here's some booze. She's like, okay, glug. Yeah, I got her to try a, which is one of my favorite drinks, is a a, a dirty uh, martini. Okay. So, and and she, you, Christine, you you enjoyed it. She was enjoyed it, it vodka or was it gin? It was vodka. Yeah, yes. that would have been my guess. So then you decided to peel off around what time? I left around ten because I wanted to get the one of the last trains back to New Jersey. So I didn't I didn't stay too too late. Uh-huh. Now was she calling it quits yet or did she keep going? All I know is that Christine was still there when I left. That's all I know. Mm, well you know more than that because there were apparently phone calls. What happened with these phone calls? 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what I'm allowed to say, what I'm not allowed to say. Oh, you're allowed to tell the truth. That's what we do on this show. You got phone calls from Christine around what time? Maybe like midnight, mm-hmm. a little earlier than that. She probably. was checking in on you, she said. Wanted to make sure you were okay. I mean, it is a long train ride back from the city to, to where I'm at in Jersey, so I, I could see it that way. A, a second phone call? Was that necessary at midnight? Just, Making sure everyone's okay. Yeah, just like very, very responsible. The only thing that's interesting about these very responsible motherly phone calls from producer Christine to YY is when this came up at our meeting today, Christine did not remember that these phone calls happened. So, yeah. The other thing is uh, she's boycotting, so she can't respond to any of this. But today, what did you say here on the rundown? A burnt cookie is what she's calling herself, a burnt cookie. It seems like maybe the way that you normally put yourself together, today might have been a rough morning. Is just the sense that I'm getting from from all of this. You were also very upset. Christine was very upset. I posted on my Instagram, my personal Instagram. You can follow us on social here at the show, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I always mention that. I'll plug my own Instagram and Twitter. It's the same handle, at Guy P. Benson. And Wyatt took a photo of me giving some of the remarks last night, so I posted that. Then you can swipe over to see another one of the four of us. We're hanging out. We all look very happy. I think it's a great photo. Christine thinks it's a terrible photo. I don't. I think it's a good photo of her. She thinks she looks, quote, wasted, which I disagree. And also, even if that's true, can one really differentiate between Christine wasted or not? I mean, who's to say? Many people are saying, I think it's a very good photo. She was objecting to this photo, apparently, but I think it was perfectly fine. And I think things kind of just went downhill from there over the course of the evening. And eventually, Christina, did you... Am I allowed to ask questions of you, or is your boycott over? It's over because Ah. it was a terrible, terrible picture of me. So don't go look at that picture and think that's what... You know, cookies all about. People should go to at Guy P. Benson on Instagram and look for themselves at, I think, a very good photo of the whole team. You got Dan on the right, then Wyatt with his impish little smirk standing right next to me, then yours truly towering over Wyatt and Christine. And Dan was sort of like almost sorority squatting, so he looks shorter than he is. And then and then producer Christine looking extremely happy and not yet overserved. That came later. That came later. I think it's a good photo. You said this is a terrible photo. This is the worst photo of me. And I very helpfully disproved that quickly, didn't I? Yeah. You put another photo in there and said, this is actually a really bad photo of you. Yeah, well, not for the world to see, just for the team to see. Oh, thank you. I texted it to our team being like, see, this is much worse. Am I I wrong? It it was a bad picture. And our (laughs) boss even agreed. Yeah, Maria. We showed it to Maria today. And she's like, oh, yeah, that is a much worse picture. And she she was confused why you were upset about the photo at Guy P. Benson on Instagram. You can see of our little our little uh, radio family here. It's just it wasn't a great picture. I think it was. How bad is your headache today? You know what the scary thing is? I woke up feeling fine, just like tired. Really? Yeah. How many drinks do you think you had over the course of the I know what I had. I don't I know I You really did not black out. You were calling Wyatt, twice, and you don't remember the phone calls, but you were counting drinks scrupulously? I had a Cosmo. Mm-hmm. I had a dirty Did you drink at the party here? Oh, right. 
That doesn't count. Yes, it does count. Of course it does. That was just like, it was like little, just a little wine. That just like didn't count. All right, so let's call that two. Yeah. Two glasses of wine, then a Cosmo. Uh-huh. Okay. Then a dirty martini. Okay. Oh, and then a blue moon. Okay. Oh, no, two blue moons. All right. And a lemon drop shot? One, two, three, four, oh, five, six, seven is what I'm counting. And I'm going to round up to 10. So it's 10 drinks, a few forgotten phone calls, and then a little weariness but no hangover this morning from producer Christine. And that is how we party here at the Guy Benson Show. Me at the gym, Dan asleep, Wyatt training home, and Christine dancing on bars at midnight. No, 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 no. I was not dancing on any bars. No. I'm a 41-year-old woman. Yeah, you don't want to inflame your bum hip. Right, that could be. The boycott is back. Just in time, because we're out of time. It's the Guy Benson Show on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio, also outnumbered tomorrow for me on the couch, noon Eastern, FNC, just a heads up there. Back here, same time, same place on the radio side. We will talk to you then. Have a good night. I'm in trouble. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.